Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Private Parts. We're still here with Rafael Rowe. Um, Rafael, you know, you, you've just launched your podcast, which all of you listeners right now, if you haven't gone over and subscribed to it, it's called Second Chance, isn't it? That's what it's called. It is, um, yeah. All podcast platforms, you can get it, right? That's right, yeah. Second chance, all podcast platforms. You, If you haven't gone and done that now, you, you got, you're going to have a hiding from me. I don't know why I'm not going to do anything, am I? But go and, go and check it out because I think it's so important. The amount of people who are wrongfully accused and put in prison is frightening, isn't it? Especially in the US. And they think, they think in the US it normally happens. In the UK, it's far worse. Isn't that right? It happens so much more in the UK where people are wrongfully accused. In terms of percentages right is that right or wrong i think that's wrong i think in america the the percentage of people who have not had their convictions overturned there is you know people on death row i mean the consequences of being wrongly convicted in america for murder um is far more serious than it is here not to say that being sentenced to life imprisonment for a crime you didn't commit is not serious i mean if they at the time, and we talked earlier in part one about, you know, the headlines, at the time that I was arrested, they were calling for hanging to be brought back. So had that what? been successful, I would have hung from my neck in the same way they used to lynch yeah. black men in... I mean, go and look at it. The newspapers were calling for hanging to be brought back. You know, these men what? should be hung. Can because, you imagine? Because, you, because you were black men? Do you think it's more... Not just because I was black men, but I, I think an element, these crimes are so horrific. You know, how very dare black people go out there and commit these crimes even though the crimes were committed by two white men and one black men and I have to keep coming back but in answer to your question you you know uh, I think the consequences of these sorts of wrongful convictions in America are far more serious because of the death penalty in in many of the states that's not to 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 underestimate the seriousness seriousness here but the statistics um don't I think reveal the the true picture you know i've traveled the world going in prisons for for my netflix yeah. series and i've met many many individuals who protest their innocence who, who have been in prison for many many years but they've not been able to establish yeah. their their innocence and therefore they're not one of those statistics yet it's crazy to think that you could just be going about your life you know yeah um, you know minding in your own business and then suddenly get you know wrongly convicted of of of, of such a serious crime as well it's not like you know, you know, it's just something small. It's I mean, a dream. It's a... You'll think it's a dream. You'd be like, wake yeah. up now, wake up from this nightmare. Come on, this is not funny. That's what you would feel, right? So it is surreal. Your worst nightmare. It, it, it is your worst nightmare. And, you know, I was wrongfully imprisoned for the most serious of offences, but people get accused of things they haven't done that are, are less serious, but it, it, it hurts and pains them just as much. I, I, on a daily basis, almost get messages from mothers, fathers, girlfriends, boyfriends, brothers, sisters, asking me to help their loved one who they believe is in prison and has been wrongly convicted. Sometimes they're not in prison, they just believe they've been wrongly convicted of a crime or accused of something that they haven't done, seeking my help. You know, and and also I think, you know, the the crime was is that uh, you had robbed 
um, wasn't it, you know, supposedly you guys, the, the, the people who had done it had robbed someone, a couple in a car park who were having sex and they had been tied up. One had a heart attack and then when it robbed another couple and one of them was stabbed. Isn't that what the conviction was? That the conviction was murder, yep. Uh, uh, a hijacking of a car, one man died, having been beaten by the perpetrators. On the same night, the... Um, the offenders who stole that car, having hijacked it, drove to a house where they robbed that house, stabbed one of the occupants, and on the same night went to a third crime scene and robbed another house of its property and stole those cars. So three separate offences in one night. And you're, you're in prison, and I'm sorry... I was going to relate prison to boarding school. It's definitely not. <laughs> it's not the same. Don't go down that route, Jamie. You're in prison. You know, you're a young guy. Is it are all the horror stories and all the things that people talk about? You have to defend for yourself. You're you have to wake up at sometimes. Is that or what is prison life like? I did my time in prison very different from the guilty murderer or the guilty man, if you say, because when my door opened at six o'clock in the morning and the screws, i.e. prison officers, expected me to step out, get my breakfast, put on my work uniform and go to work, I did none of that, which meant that I was often placed on, on internal reports or sometimes dragged to the segregation block because I refused to conform. There is a regime in prison, and I think for the guilty man, it helps discipline and give them structure and give them purpose. You know, they get up, they go to work, some for the very first time le- uh, learn to read and write, so they make use of what, you know, educational facilities there are. It may be that guys go into workshops and learn you know, skills, um, etc. For me, it was it was very different. I fought the regime. I never worked, for example, in all the years that I was in prison. The only job that I was prepared to do was be a gym orderly. So when we talk about my anger driving my resilience, mm. the physical um, exercise that I did in prison gave me the strength to channel that anger. I was... When I say super, 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 super fit, I was above that. I was so disciplined in prison in terms of exercise. You know, I would be in... And this was in my cell. It all started in that prison within a prison where in order to to, to keep sane and to keep myself occupied, I mastered all forms of bodily exercises, whether it was press-ups, squats, you know, burpees, all kind of bodily physical activities and I maintain that throughout the 12 years that I was in prison and so I say the only job I was prepared to do in prison was to work in the gym which was also a privileged job because everybody wants to go in the gym and use the facilities and and I in some of the establishments that I was held in I was able to secure that job but other than that I didn't do any jobs which which led to a lot of the sort of physical beatings that I, I got from prison officers because yeah. I didn't conform. But you asked the question, is prison really like we see? Of course it is. You know, one of the yeah. first incidents that I witnessed was the, the, you know, the throwing of boiling water over the face of a black guy whose who's skin peeled from his face. I was involved um, quite early on in, in, in my prison sentence with one of the most violent fights that I... I, 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 
I experienced in the time that I was in prison. Um, it's all detailed in my book, but it was with mm. it was with the biggest guy who was the biggest bully, and he was also a racist. And I wasn't going to allow him to to dictate um, my my torment. And he was tormenting so many people, and and it was so interesting because um, I offered him out, and and you. To do that, you've got to be able to fight. And and like I say, you know, I'm five foot eight. This guy was like six foot six, built like a big. <laughs> so how do we, when, how I, do you offer them out? What do you say? Hey, you, pick your pistol. See you at dawn. How does how does, how does it not, work? It, it's more of a, a an eye thing. It's more of a. We, we, I was in a corridor. I was in Gartree Prison, which was a maximum security prison up in Leicestershire, and the cells are almost banged up opposite each other. So there's a very small corridor, probably three meters apart. And I remember coming out of my cell, banging on his cell door, and telling him that we're going to have it, kind of thing. Can't remember my exact words. If I would have gone into that cell, he would have put his arms around me and crushed me like a bear. So really? as as he came for me, I kind of run down the corridor, so he had to follow me. And then there was this entourage of other prisoners, and we went down into the kind of TV reception area. The screws, prison officers, saw what was happening. They disappeared, so they could allow it to happen. And we went into this recreational room and it was like two gladiators. I was kind of literally jumping up in the air and punching him because he was so tall. And it was after that fight, actually, I was in the shower washing my wounds, cleaning the blood from me. Um, I think it was a draw, the fight. And it's at that point where, you know, you often see in films that the protagonist will 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 come in and and finish the the victim and i consider myself the victim with a knife or something but actually the guy came into the shower and he shook my hand and sort of said you know i've got a lot of respect and that reputation followed me throughout the years in prison that you cannot and will not mess with raf because he will fight back and i needed to do that to let people know that my focus is my innocence but i will stand up for myself i'm not going to suffer what i saw that black guy suffer boiling water poured over his face you know i witnessed people kill themselves i witnessed prisoners kill other prisoners i endured strip cells i i went through quite a lot and you know you have to um you know if anyone you've got your book which is called notorious which you can go and get and if you want to hear more of these stories in detail you can go and do it because you know i I could sit with you here and say francis for hours and we could go through all of these stories but i think one of the big things are you know you're 12 years in there you had all these horrific things happen to you you then get released and you walk down the steps as a free man you know your life then what is life? You're 12 years. You're, you're used to a nine by four, whatever, nine by six, nine by four cell. You're used to fighting, arguing, watching over your shoulder, being fed food. And suddenly you're just left to be a free man. And, and the, you know, the legal system has agreed that they made a mistake, right? Like what happens? Do you, are you compensated? Are you then suddenly left by yourself? You know, what, what happens? There's a number of things. I mean, the first thing is 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 unconditioning or uninstitutionalizing myself. So, for example, when you're in prison, um, uh, you, you, you said earlier you're in lockdown at the moment and you kind of feel a little bit restricted. But you can there are little things and it's important for people to remember this. You know, in your lockdown now, Jamie, you can reach for the handle of a door and open it and walk out if you want, although the government are insisting that you can you know, ply with, with the rules. For 12 years, I'd lost the, the ability to, 
to open a door because every door, and I say door, I mean gate that I came up against, I couldn't open for myself. Making decisions I couldn't do for myself because the prison regime dictated when I could go to the toilet and when I couldn't go to the toilet, um, when I could do things and when I couldn't do things. But it's the little things. So when I first walked out of the Court of Appeal and was handed a mobile phone, for example, for the first time, because they didn't exist when I went to prison, neither did the internet. Yeah. The internet and Shit, mobile so phones. all these things. Yeah, it, it, I didn't it, think it, it was. It, it really is. You know, technology had moved on. I remember getting into the taxi. So I walked down the Court of Appeal steps. I'm a free man. I shouted to the media who were there taking pictures and doing their things. And then it was kind of whisked me off to wherever it is I was going. And I got into the back of a black taxi. I remember with, with my sisters and was handed a mobile phone for the very first time. And mm. I, I say this flippantly, but I just didn't know what to do with it because I didn't have one when I was in prison. It's in, in the prisons that I was in were so secure that you couldn't get a, a Rizzler paper in there, let alone a mobile phone. That's so how, there, were, there weren't drugs and things like that? Were there there was, drugs, there was, you know, I smoked a spliff every day I was in prison. There was always mm. a, a, a contraband, um, but there was no mobile phones or anything like that. Um, you, you know, drugs were often brought in by prison guards, you know, gangsters would pay them, etc. So when I was handed that phone for the very first time, I didn't know what to do with it, you know. Um, and I slept in a single bed in a nine by six cell for 12 years. So can you imagine, I'm all of a sudden, the first couple of nights in a hotel while I'm doing interviews uh, about my predicament and, and there's this big double bed and, and it was just so uncomfortable. So the first 12 months, I had to sleep with my bed up against the wall um, and that was really difficult. I couldn't sleep in a bed with another person. I'd been on my own for 12 years. So as much as I tried to catch up on my sexual life, I, <laughs> yeah, couldn't, yeah, I, could, yeah. I couldn't spend the night with, with a woman, which, which, which is in itself quite rude because I'd, I'd have my wicked way, as would they. And then it was like, um, would, would you mind? But at yeah. least I had the excuse of sort of saying, I just can't do this. It was, it was like Sorry, a I've been mummy. in prison was, for 12 years. <laughs> you know, so did, I, it feel I, like, did it feel like just a completely different world that you'd step back into? It was a completely different world, Francis. I was 32 when I came out. I was 20 when I went in. Technology, as I said, moved on. You know, everything had moved on, had had people's attitudes. But but can you imagine walking up to a door, stopping at that door and not reaching for the handle instinctively as you would do in real life because that's what we've always done. Yeah. But I'd lost that instinct as I had to make decisions because I was never allowed. And one of the most difficult things was conversation. My conversation in prison was restricted to prison. You don't see the outside world. I had visitors and we talk 90% of the visiting time about my appeal, about my fight for my freedom. So I'd lost the art of conversation. So sitting in the company of people um, was really difficult, really, really hard because I didn't have anything to talk about. I only... Was it social anxiety? Prison. Was it a social anxiety type thing? You suddenly you became like a... Or, or was it just literally you just didn't know what to say almost? I just didn't know what to say because I had no conversation. The only thing I could yeah. talk about is what we're talking about now. I had no conversation. I had no existence. I lived in a nine by six. So my whole existence was what was going on in prison, the prison politics mm -hmm. and my court case. Other than that, I, guess... I couldn't talk about what had been on telly the night before, yeah. what the latest trend was. 
what the fashion because was. Because so much of what you, you know, when you're socializing with people, I mean, as a part of socializing is, 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 is touching on points of reference in the world around you that you can all kind of relate to, uh, you know, and that kind of creates a bond between, creates connection between people. So if, you, if your entire frame of reference is the past 12 years that you've been inside a nine by six cell, I mean, I guess, where do you start with, with, with someone that you're coming into contact with outside? Found it very, very difficult. You know, people would ask me that very simple question. Oh, what have you been up to if they didn't know who I was? Yeah. And it's like, do I tell them or don't I tell them? I mean, I always did. You know, I've been able to overcome these, these, these challenges, but these were the kind of early challenges that I faced. There were many more. Um, I was compensated uh, at some point, but I was very, very fortunate. You know, most guys and girls that I know that have been through a similar experience come out, turn to drugs and end up dying or, or, or they live a particular life. I was very fortunate that within 12 months of, of, of walking out from uh, prison, I landed a job at the BBC. I was given an opportunity at the BBC, which is why my podcast is all mm. about second chance, because I took this opportunity and have gone on to lead a very successful career, first with the BBC at the Radio 4 Today programme, as an investigative journalist for, for Panorama, going undercover and doing all the stuff I did then, and now working for, for Netflix and other production companies. So I've had a, a very successful career built out of my prison experience so I've not just kind of left it behind I've used that suffering I've used that anger I've used the meticulous skills of being an investigative um, Mm. for myself and I've turned it into becoming a meticulous detailed investigative journalist Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I was going to say that I, I don't I, I don't think it's and you know this is you know this far better than me, but it's not because you went to prison. It's because you have that drive, you have that passion, you have that way about you. So that's what I think that you know you were dealt an incredibly unlucky hand. I mean, the, the worst pretty you can possibly imagine. Um, and it's not luck that has done it. Oh, you've you've been prison. It's just your drive and your passion, your true grit and your understanding has, has brought you this way because you have you've done this Netflix series as well which I'm a huge fan of where you go into all the toughest prisons in the world and you chat to people in there and I saw the one where you went to um, in South Africa uh, that's full on you know you, you, <laughs> you walk into the cell and you just have to hang out with criminals with criminals right and you're not a criminal that's the thing you're not a criminal right well so i, I suppose talk- imagine some of them aren't as well right like you said well yeah i know but yeah i don't know sure. i mean the, you, you mentioned the south african one and the focus there was the numbers gang and the numbers gang yeah. is a prisons okay. gang this gang doesn't exist outside of prison so you have these guys who are from the 26s the 27s and the 28s and it's a notorious 
um, culture in, in the South African prison system. And it is dangerous. It is ruthless and it is cold, as cold as it gets. And you're right, when I first walk into the cell, and I should stress for your audience that have watched the show or, or, or will go to watch the show, none of this is stage. None of this is pretend. I know as much as I discover in that situation, sometimes the crew are a step ahead of me. Obviously, they have to be. They have to know where we're filming in order. But it's all organic. We don't go in there, sit down and have a briefing with these guys. They're, they're told two things, probably more, but I, I take they're told two things. One is they're to treat me as a... They know that I'm a presenter of a, a programme, but they're to treat me as, a, a, as, as any other prisoner. So when I walked into that South African prison, not knowing what was going to happen, it was quite intimidating because they have this language where they communicate with each other. All of a sudden, I'm sat down between the colonel and this other guy who are kind of coming at me. And, and this is where my prison kind of experience does come in. I keep my calm. My heart is pounding inside my chest, but I've been in those situations for real. And I kind of know how to diffuse to some extent even though this is a, a very foreign culture and then they take my techies techies being my trainers you know they kind of <laughs> yeah. took, took my shoes <laughs> off of my feet it's all very real and all very unnerving um do you know what do you know what, i want to ask two things firstly i mentioned forgiveness right and i think a lot of people in life um find it hard to forgive and your forgiveness again is much more, but it's, you know, whether it's uh, a best friend doing something to you, uh, a breakup, someone cheating, you know, whatever it is in life. Um, first, have you been able to forgive? And if you have, how do you forgive? I've never forgiven mm -hmm. because there is no one to forgive. No one has stood in front of me and said, sorry. Funnily enough, only a few weeks ago, a police officer, a senior police officer is involved in... Um, fighting knife crime in London in particular, um, but he's part of the anti-violence unit for, for the mayor of London. I had a, a, a Zoom with him and he's the first police officer. He wasn't involved in my case, had nothing to do. You know, he comes from a completely different generation. And before we even started the conversation, he said, sorry, I was taken aback because I, I, I've never heard it from anybody. I was really surprised. So nobody who was involved in my wrongful conviction, whether it was witnesses who gave fabricated evidence, the police or the prosecution or the judges or anybody involved in the actual wrongful conviction have ever said sorry to me. They've compensated me, but they've never said sorry to me. And I've never forgiven anybody because there is no one to forgive. No one is stood in front of me and mm. asked for my forgiveness. And I don't think I could anyway. It's not part of what's in my soul. It's just not what I want or, or need. Okay, so then if you can't forgive, and I totally appreciate that, if you can't forgive, then how do you move past? How do you move past something? And perhaps people can't forgive, you know, whatever's happened in their lives, but how do you put it to one side and go, that's a life that I live, but now this is my new life? But I don't need to do that, and I don't want yeah. to do that, because it is a part of who I am. It's why we're sitting here having this conversation now. Yeah. I want it to stay with me, because it dictates what I do next. It's what's helped me move forward, because if you spent 12 years learning to become the best podcaster in the world, you would use that 12 years on, wouldn't you? So mm. I learned to become the person that I am through the experience and I use it in, in my work for Netflix. You know, I didn't agree to go into prisons around the world because 
I want to entertain people. It's because I want to change people's perceptions because I needed people's perceptions to change about my predicament when I was wrongfully imprisoned. And that's not my mission to go around prisons telling everybody they're innocent. It's just to change people's perceptions about the inside of this environment that we don't get to see as honestly as I'm trying to portray it. And so... Mm. It's not about moving past for me, Jamie. It's about, you know, remembering and using it to, to, to better my future and other people's. I guess you're also uniquely positioned to give that perspective, right, because of your experience. So, you know, I think it's actually, you know, it's, it's amazing that you can do this and that you were given that opportunity at the BBC all those years ago. And now you're, you're in this position to really actually make that impact that you want to. Yeah, no, it, 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 it absolutely is. You know, you've got to remember, I go into some very, very dangerous places. You know, guys in these prisons yeah. have, have cut the heads off of other prisoners and used them as footballs. And I've seen these videos. Prisoners send me these videos from the phones inside the prisons as they're doing it. I mean, that's how horrific this journey of going inside the world's toughest prison. So what people see in that show is only what we can show. What I'm getting in the confines of my own home uh, uh, is the extension of some real violent incidents. And the key is this, I think most of the time, I stood in, in prison and watched and witnessed things around me, took part in things to survive and met every type of man you can impossibly imagine me meeting the good the bad the ugly the manipulative the 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 vulnerable the kind the wicked every kind of man and every kind of man that i met in my own existence exists in these prisons they may not speak the same language they may have a different cultural upbringing but there are wicked bad good and evil in all of these men differently individuals so i've met them all and like to think that that one of the things I offer in this Netflix show is I, I read their aura to some extent. I can smell the fear, etc. It's something you know that I've honed. Yeah, do you know what? So I, I, I going back to boarding. I went to boarding school. Said right at the age of eight years old. Thing that I say about boarding school, which is the biggest sort of lesson that I learned, is I was thrown into an environment where I had to make friends. I didn't want to go there. I was sent there, but I had to make friends to survive. And what it's made me able to do now is that I'm pretty good at understanding what someone is like and, and sort of relating to them. I think with you, Rafael, you must be an incredible reader of individuals and you can tell what people are like pretty quickly. What are would that be right in saying that? Oh, yeah, I've got you two sussed already. I know, I've been on there how long, and I know exactly what you two are like. I can see Jamie's got the energy, and Francis is the thoughtful one. Um, you know, yeah, I, 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 well, look, I mean, not 100%. Do you see colours? Do you see colours around people? Some people I see colours. I, you... I wish I had that gift. I, I just know. Yeah, I, I, I say I know. It's an instinct, isn't it? I think you get this gut feeling and where I've experienced it. But there's also that protective mechanism, you know, back against the wall kind of behaviour that, that I've adopted. One, in prisons that I serve time in and in the environments that I now work in, I know when to have my back against the wall, when to trust someone and not trust someone. Um, and so, yeah, instinctively, I, I but, you know, I, I make mistakes, but, but, but I am in a position, a privileged position because of my, my, my experiences. River, I honestly salute you. It's it's on it's it's incredible because I don't think, for coming from a personal point of view, there's no way that um, my brain, my body would be able to take that much abuse, that much pain, and um, even afterwards, you know, 
I, you know, I, I would don't think I would be able to handle with what I had experienced and seen and, and gone through. And I, and I don't know how you as an individual, you do it. Because I think it's amazing. And you know, Raphael, it, how, how do you think Jamie would survive in <laughs> prison without hair dye? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> look, you, you say that, but look, let, let's just be clear here. I think when when you find yourself in a situation, I'm sure you both have and has as many of your rules and you found yourself in a situation that you didn't put yourself in, didn't want to be in somehow, mm. some way. You may have gone through, you, you, you know, suicidal thoughts. You might be anxious. You may be depressed. But there is a way out. And, and that's the underlying message, isn't there? I think either through somebody helping you or through you finding your own path, there is a way out. What, what, what I always advocate is that you don't forget what you went through to be who you are today. If mm. you can use it in the right way, and we talked about anger at the beginning of this conversation, I use that in the right way and the wrong way at times. But I do believe that if Jamie found himself banged up, somehow, in some way, you have no choice. You have to survive in the same way that people have survived lockdown and now looking to come out the other end. Whatever the trials and tribulations have been and the difficulties, we can see a light at the end of this ridiculous tunnel. Rafael, I, I, I think that is so we, we talk a lot about on this podcast with about mental health and different things. And um, I think a lot of people experience hardships in their life. And, you know, and it is that. And I always say the same thing. You know, we talk about men, two thirds of, of suicides are male, you know, and it's only rising at the moment. It's a horrific thing. And and with suicide, one of those things, it's it's you don't get a second chance once you make that decision. And um, that's what's so awful about it. And if you take your life and um, talking to someone and getting through it, because as much as it seems awful right now, if you just push yourself through it, and yes, it may take 12 years. It may be 12 years, but you just get through it, get through but, it, get through yeah, it. Yeah, things get, thing, when things are really bad, you can count on them eventually getting better, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, you know, and, and suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, uh, you know, mm. in, in many cases. I guess in, in, in your case, Raphael, you didn't know that it, it, it would ultimately be a temporary problem, but you were just driven to keep fighting until you saw that vindication, right? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I went on hunger strike during my time in prison to the point where I was hospitalised. You know, I was protesting, and so I was hospitalised when I went on hunger strike. Um, you, you know, and I, I've been asked the question a few times. You know, did did you not mm. think about ending your own life? You, you, you know, um, when it was at its worst. And I liken it to being in a car. The the rain is pouring, and it's endless you're just driving and then you hit a tunnel and then for that brief five seconds the rain stops you come out the other end and the rain starts again but at some point you're going to hit another tunnel and that tunnel is going to get bigger and bigger and then the rain stops you, you, you know I kind of likened it to, to that that's that a wonderful terrible. analogy that is a wonderful analogy it, and, and it's true the next time you're in your car and you're driving along feel it and I've, I've used that someone once said to me that uh, and I used to get road rage and I become very impatient. You'd think that I'd master the art of patience, <laughs> having, having spent. But I was so eager, you know. I, I'm to get somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I want to get somewhere. I'm, I'm 32. I've missed 12 years of my life, and boy, did I try to catch up. I mean, it, I, I was wicked and wild in, in those first year. But, oh, but someone said to me, when you're when you're in um, traffic and you can't go anywhere. But what can you do? And, and, and that's what life is like. There is nothing you can do. You just have to wait. 
it will move. The public speaking I do, I talk about the, the kind of five-year or three-year changes. You know, when I was 20, I was sitting in a prison within a prison, destined to spend the rest of my life in prison. You know, fast forward three years, and I was in a maximum security prison having a fight with the biggest guy. Fast forward another three years, I was sitting down having deep and meaningful conversations with Reggie Cray in Maidstone <laughs> Prison. Yeah. Fast forward another three years, and, and, and I was helping overweight guys lose weight. Fast forward another three years, I was the captain of the only prison football team called Manslaughter United. <laughs> Fast forward three years, and I was looking at the end of 12 years of being in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Fast forward another X amount of years, and I'm now on, on this podcast talking to you guys. So my message is quite clear. You know, you don't know what the future holds, so try and hold on to that hope. Rafael, that, that analogy of going through the tunnel with the rain, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that. And I always say it's your one, but I, I'm going to keep that and tell that to other He's going to take credit for it. He's going to use it as his own. That's just <laughs> no, Jamie to... <laughs> but I'm going to... That's a really... Because it, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't persona, personify nothing more clearly than what um, you can go through in a life. And those brief moments of <sighs> safety... I only get bigger and bigger as you go along. Listen, to all of you listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, go and straight over now and have a listen to Rafael's other podcast, uh, not his other podcast, his podcast, Second Chance. Go and check it out. It's on all podcast platforms. Go and get his book, Notorious. Watch his Netflix shows. Follow him on social media. The links are all below. Rafael, honestly, buddy, it, I knew this was going to be a great one. It's been an absolute honor having you on. Um, and thank you so much for giving us your time. We can't appreciate it anymore. Well, look, thank, thanks for having me on. And, and your questions have been very intelligent. It's been enjoyable, actually. I've enjoyed the conversation. As you said at the beginning, I can tell my story and have told my story a million times. But it's who you're talking to sometimes. And the genuineness I felt from you guys made it easy for me to express myself. So thanks for having me on and thank your listeners for listening. Buddy, really thanks appreciate for coming it. on. All you listeners, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.